Welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 12. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me I have our brilliant medical guide, Dr. Glenn Wollman. Hello, Glenn. How are you today? I am great, Christina, and greetings to everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I'll be your medical guide today as we travel through the healthcare galaxy searching for optimal health. How was your weekend, Christina? Oh, brilliant. Brilliant as usual. Um, yeah. The energies were strong and we were working right through the weekend as per usual. <laughs> right. You're going to tell me that's not healthy. I know that. No, I think it's very healthy. I, uh, in, in the, my past life in emergency medicine, I never even considered that there were weekends that existed. And when you're in a residency program, you don't even know when, when seasons exist. <laughs> <laughs> I remember during uh, one of my surgery rotations, I was on a rotation for about three months. And I would get there in the dark in the morning, and I would leave in the dark at night. And we were working in these operating room caves. And the only way we knew that it was something is someone would come in and say, you know, how was your Christmas? Oh, <laughs> then, <okay. laughs> then we would know that it was winter. <laughs> wow yeah things like that that was that was our uh cue to the outside world well now now you're bringing the outside world to the people who are inside <laughs> that's right i think so you know today's a very special day we're going to be talking about a very interesting topic end of life and end of life care uh, and many of us don't want to face that although we all end up facing it Many times we end up facing it uh, with a loved one first before we have our own. And I was doing a little bit of research, and I was looking up uh, history of hospice and how hospice is termed in other countries and things like that. And in, in Taiwan, for example, the term for hospice is translated into peaceful care. Mm, and then, yeah, it is lovely. And then in Hong Kong... They didn't even actually have a word for it for a long time because the culture was that you took care of anyone yes. that was sick. You kept them in the house. Yes. So they have a word for that, and I don't think I would try to uh, say it, but the translation or the simple translation means well-ending service. Mm. And it takes very special, very special people to go into this because of the entire process. And my guest today is Dr. Michael Bordofsky, who is one of those very special people who branched out uh, from his career in internal medicine as an internist uh, and works as the director, the medical director of the Santa Barbara Hospice and Palliative Care Institute. Mm. So I would like to take this moment and introduce my good friend and colleague, uh, Michael Bordofsky. Greetings, Michael. Hi, Glenn. How Hello, are you? Hello, Michael. <clears throat> good morning. I'm doing well. And uh, you've met Christina now. <laughs> I have. Excellent. So usually, just to let me set the stage for you, Michael, as the medical guide, I usually try to give our... Uh, audience an idea of the path that we're going to take today. So what I usually like to do is start out and talk with you a little bit about your own personal uh, journey, how you got into medicine, what interested in you in medicine, when, why, how, where, all of that, and why you chose to be an internist, and then how you made the shift into hospice and palliative care. And then we'll go into what hospice and palliative care are, and then we'll talk about some practical aspects that I think uh, people really need to know. And at the end, we'll hopefully end with a health tip from you to guide us all towards optimal health. How does that sound to you? That sounds good. Okay, so let's, uh, let's get started here. Um, I'd like to know, and I, the audience would like to know, give us a little bit of your journey. So um, 
you know, first, I'm not one of these people who knew they wanted to go into medicine from the time they were in, you know, grade school. Um, but uh, my mom is a nurse, and she was um, she didn't work as a, a nurse uh, in a hospital setting, at least when I was growing up. But she worked uh, as a Lamaze teacher mm. for many years. So I would have uh, grew up having uh, these couples come to our houses house with uh, their pillows in hand. So I was exposed to kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> a, uh, an interesting side of healthcare uh, throughout my youth. But I didn't really plan on going into medicine. I didn't know what I was going to do. But I ended up, you know, in college and I was a, um, in the, a science major and I got good grades. And when I was in college, if you were a science or biology major and you got good grades, then medical school was what you, uh, what you looked at and aspired to. So that's kind of how I how I ended up um, going into medicine. So it wasn't some um, kind of burning interest or passion of mine at the time. Um, but I went on to medical school. Of course, my my mother, who was a nurse, was quite happy about that, and um, uh, went to medical school in San Diego. And then um, I was uh, uh, married and had had my first child uh, right at the end of medical school, and uh, had to make decisions about what both where we wanted to live and what specialty to uh, to go into. And uh, my wife and I are both from um, Santa Barbara, and we decided to uh, try to come back here. And to do that here, um, they had an internal medicine and a surgery program in town, and I chose to do internal medicine. Nice. So you practiced internal medicine for a while and still practice it, in fact, correct? I do. I do. I do about spend about half my time doing um, general internal medicine, so I'm you know, a primary care provider to um, adults with things like, you know, as mundane as high blood pressure and diabetes and doing wellness checkups. Um, then the other half of my time, I um, work in hospice and palliative medicine. And what was it that took you there? That's First of all, it's a pretty new field. I mean, it's been around for maybe many centuries around my research says the 11th century to some level, but in this country, it's only been uh, relatively recent in terms of joining the healthcare uh, process. Mm -hmm. What made you recognize that, see the need for it, and and what drew you to it? Um, well, um, again, I I sort of fell into it uh, uh, almost. I won't say accidentally, but um, uh, almost in an accidental way. And um, it's a little bit of a story. Do we have time for me to tell you the, the story of how that happened? Uh, I think so. I'll stop you okay. if I've heard the story. <laughs> okay. so, but I um, haven't heard and, it. <laughs> so, Christina would probably also say there are no accidents. Yeah. Well, you may, uh, you'll probably reinforce that when I uh, tell you this. And yeah, Christina, you'll probably like this story, I'm guessing. But um, so I was a medical resident um, at Cottage Hospital here in Santa Barbara, and at the end of my internship year, my first year of training, one of the other in, one of the other um, residents who was leaving the program um, came up to me and said, uh, "Mike, um, I've got this patient. I'm hoping uh, you'll you'll take over for me because I'm leaving, and I want to make sure she she doesn't fall through the cracks. Mm -hmm. And will you see her at at the uh, county clinic?" And um, we had a, an outpatient uh, half-day clinic that we each attended. And so I agreed to take this, this patient. Her name was Ann. And she was in her mid-40s and had um, metastatic cervical cancer. So, you know, advanced cancer. And she was past the point where, um, where she could receive curative treatment. She was in that phase where she was getting um, hospice care and comfort-focused treatment. And so Anne would come to see me in um, the outpatient clinic um, on you know every two or three weeks, and she would come in to see me, and and she was a pleasant uh, woman, and and I liked her, but I didn't really feel like I was doing much for her, because there were no more you know chemotherapies to give her, there were no drugs to give her, there was just you know talk and and pain management to uh, to do for her, um, but she for reasons at the time that I didn't really. Um, have a good grasp of. She kept coming back to the clinic, and she wanted to see a doctor and wanted to have that uh, that connection. But as she got sicker, she got to the point where she couldn't come into the clinic. And 
the whole time I was getting these calls from um, this hospice nurse who was looking after her in between our visits. And when this hospice nurse would call, she would say things to me like, you know, Dr. Bordofsky, uh, Anne's having, uh, having more pain. Um, don't you think we should increase her, her pain medicines a little bit? And, you know, I wasn't real um, knowledgeable back then, but I knew enough to uh, know when I was speaking to someone who knew more than I did. And, um, and so I would say, sure, yeah, that's exactly what I was uh, thinking. We should, you know, adjust her morphine dose. And, and so this hospice nurse kind of led me through, um, guided me through the care of this patient. And when she got to the point where she couldn't come into the office anymore, after a few of these phone calls, I said to the nurse, I said, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little bit uncomfortable with this now. I haven't seen Anne in, in several weeks, and um, you know, I these are we're prescribing controlled substances, and and I just don't know if this is right. It seems like you know, it, it's not right for me to keep um, doing these things if she can't come in to see me. And the hospice nurse uh, said to me on the phone, she said kind of very calmly, she said, "Well, Doctor Bordovsky, you could make a house call." And um, I had, this, of course, hadn't occurred to me at the time that I could do that. But um, again, that wasn't part I, of I, your residency training. It wasn't part of the residency training. But I went to my uh, supervisor and said, you know, I've got this hospice patient who can't come into the office now. And the nurse said, maybe I should do a, a house call. Is that OK? And, and he said, sure, go ahead and go ahead and do that. So from that point forward, I started making house calls to see Anne. And um, she was. Um, uh, a mother. She had two teenage uh, sons, and she was living in her parents' house um, at the time, and they were kind of her main caregivers. And so I would go out to see her every uh, week or two, and again, it was kind of the same thing. I would go see her, felt like, you know, gosh, I'm not really sure what I'm doing here, and I don't really feel like I'm doing a whole lot, but she wants me to keep coming back. So I did that, and, you know, I established, you know, a nice uh, relationship and rapport with her family, and, and you know, found it surprisingly uh, enjoyable to, to take care of and be with uh, this woman who was dying. Mm. And um, uh, then uh, one day I got the call that she had passed away. And um, I remember it was on a Saturday morning. And as Glenn, as you know, the, the interns and residents in the hospital are the ones who are responsible for um, going and pronouncing patients when they die. Um, so typically, uh, if you, somebody dies in the hospital, the intern will go to the patient's bedside and, uh, and listen to their heart and write down the time of death. And I didn't realize that that wasn't something that, that you had to do um, outside with the death that happens outside of the hospital. So when the nurse called me and said that Anne had passed away, I, um, I said, okay, well, I'll go out and pronounce her. And I think I wanted some closure uh, uh, myself at the time. So... Um, as I'm driving down the freeway to get to her house to, um, to go see her and see her family, it had been kind of a rainy morning, and I look up over the freeway, and there's this giant rainbow spanning the, uh, the freeway and coming down in her, uh, in her neighborhood, it appeared. And, um, you know, I'm driving along looking at this and, and, you know, saying, you know, I don't really believe in these things. Come on, that's not... <laughs> <laughs> that can't be real, um, but I'm pretty sure uh, it wasn't a hallucination. And um, it, uh, I got to her house and um, I pronounced her and I visited with her family and um, gave my condolences to them, and um, really had what was probably uh, certainly uh, the most memorable um, experience of my whole medical training. And uh, when I finished my training a couple years later. Um, there happened to be an opening in the hospice. They needed a new medical director. And that same um, supervisor who had given me permission to make that hospice visit um, recommended to them that they interview me and, and uh, consider me for that job, which they did. And, and I got the job and took the job. And that was about you know, 17 years ago or so. And I've been working with the hospice team uh, and uh, ever since. So it was, uh, it was, it was a very memorable uh, story. It was almost like, um, you know, my uh, sort of uh, pot of gold at the end was at the end of that rainbow and be become a very fulfilling and meaningful part of my work. Mm. <clears throat> what a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing that, Michael. And yeah, isn't that great? The other side of the rainbow. <laughs> 
yeah. those uh, you know, so-called I was, illusions. <laughs> I was going to say the exact same words. What a beautiful story. But I had a feeling that you may say something, Christina, and it, I'm glad I waited because it sounded so w- nice listening to you say it <laughs> rather than me. And thank you for, for sharing that. It's uh, It clearly was uh, profound and memorable for you because you remember such wonderful details mm-hmm. of that. Uh, so in your mind, uh, was it an accident? Um, I, I don't think, uh, I mean, I think in my mind, rainbows are a phenomenon of nature, and I recognize mm-hmm. them as that. Um, I don't think it's an accident that I uh, ended up in, you know, working in uh, in this field. I think I was probably drawn to it, and, um, and you know, you create your own experiences, uh, I think. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be a good idea for us to know uh, a definition of hospice and maybe differentiate it between hospice and palliative care. What are the similarities? What are different about them? Can you? Sure. Sure. Well, um, hospice gets defined, um, you know, variably. In in a lot of ways, um, hospice is sort of a philosophy of care. It's a philosophy about affirming life. Um, recognizing dying as part of the the natural process of life. Um, Hospice focuses on um, family and the family and and friend relationship to the person who's dying. It recognizes that it's not an experience that just an individual has, but but that um, a family or a group has um, together. Um, And then hospice um, recognizes that it's an important part of care for uh, people who are at that point in their life is um, attending to kind of the um, psychological and social and spiritual needs of, of um, patients and families. So, um, so in that way, it's sort of a philosophy of care. Um, that philosophy of care, though, has been translated um, into models of care in this country. So hospice is also um, a model of care. It can be a place so people can go to a hospice home or a hospice facility where they get that model of care. So that's another definition of, of what a hospice could be, which would be basically a place for the dying to go to where they're um, kept comfortable and, and cared for. Um, and it's also a, um, a program or a, uh, it's, a, it's an insurance uh, paid for benefit for uh, most people who have medical insurance and everybody who has Medicare. In fact, uh, Medicare's adoption of hospice and recognition um, about uh, 20 to 25 years ago that they that it was a valuable um, part of the medical spectrum is really what accelerated um, hospice growth in this country. Um, so Medicare um, said, you know, we think this is valuable. We should we should cover that as part of people's health care. Um, people uh, had access to um, excellent hospice care. Programs grew incredibly throughout this country in um, the 1980s and the 1990s, um, and it became so successful. People said, "Wow, this this hospice stuff is is great. It's too bad you have to be home at home to get it because hospice was a home-based service. You know, it's too bad for all these people dying in the hospital or sick in the hospital that they can't get good access to these teams of uh, doctors and nurses and and uh, volunteers to take care of them in the hospital too." And so out of that um, grew um, uh, palliative care in this country. So palliative care was the answer to that question. What can we do to, to bring this model of care into the acute care setting and expand it beyond just people who are, uh, who are at the very end of their life, but also include people who have you know, a serious illness but aren't necessarily dying or may still be expecting to recover. So we started with hospice as a home care model for people who are dying, and then in the last 10 years, there's just been an incredible growth of palliative care, which is done, um, at least initially, in hospital settings, not just for people who are dying, but for people who are facing a serious illness, so they can get um, get good quality uh, symptom management and good support uh, as they're going through that. And then the latest thing that's happening now is people are saying, wow, this palliative care stuff is great. Um, it's too bad you have to be in a hospital to get that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of come full circle, and people are now saying, "Well, you know, we've got hospice care for people who are at home who are who are dying, 
Um, we have palliative care for people in the hospital who are either, you know, going to die in the hospital or who just are pretty sick and could use that extra layer of support. And now they're saying we should have palliative care in the community setting for people who aren't necessarily needing hospice care, but still need symptom management and and support. Um, so that's sort of the latest movement is um, clinic-based and outpatient-based palliative care programs. Hmm. What do you see in the future for hospice? How is it going to evolve even more? Well, I mean, that's, that's a really good question because um, hospice and palliative medicine have, have you know, like I said, really grown uh, incredibly. Um, and, you know, we're really being looked at as one of the components of um, uh, trying to help improve the healthcare system in this country um, because we are, we are team-based, we're value-focused uh, in terms of focusing on what patients really want um, most themselves, so focusing on um, comfort and quality of life. Um, and so people are, on the one hand, looking towards hospice and palliative care and saying, you know, this is what we need more of in our healthcare system, these types of models of care. But then on the other hand, um, we sort of got kicked in the stomach with uh, the healthcare reform um, issue when, when that was uh, being debated and, and passed in, uh, in uh, 2010, I believe it was now, where... Um, some people were saying, yeah, we need to provide more hospice and palliative care to people. And then a certain uh, governor got on her Twitter account and tweeted um, something about um, palliative care and hospice being uh, uh, equivalent of death panels. And so all of that part of the, uh, the health care reform was kind of stripped out and, um, and taken out of the uh, health care reform uh, budget. Yeah. And we really needed it because we, we were sort of running out of um, – out of, uh, doctors and nurses to do um, palliative care and hospice care. So we need training programs. We need more research in the field so that we, uh, we can kind of improve our, um, our uh, you know, scientific uh, basis for, for care. And, um, you know, so we, we really need um, that kind of support from our national health care programs and stuff. And this was kind of a setback for us. But, um, but the, you know, we, we're so – Hospice and palliative medicine, um, there's so much demand for it, and patients, you know, are just really happy and satisfied when they get um, care from our hospice teams and our palliative care teams. So, um, you know, we're we're a resilient uh, group, and and I think uh, I think our future in healthcare is is going to be really a, a prominent one. But we've got to get past some of you know being uh, used and manipulated by uh, certain cynical uh, uh, politicians. It always comes down to politics, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's always there in the background. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, pretty amazing. I, I, I just, uh, uh, being from Canada, I wasn't very familiar with the healthcare system here in the U.S. You know, the the only thing that I always think of is necessary have insurance. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, recently, last year, um, I had taken in. Um, a 91-year-old uncle who was told that he was going to die in about, you know, in about two to three weeks. And I, I took him into my home because he had no children, etc. And I was immersed suddenly into, um, uh, I guess you call it Kaiser. Is Kaiser PPO or I, I don't know how you. Yeah, they're, they're, I think, sort of an HMO model. But Is it pretty, HMO? Pretty be evolved one, yeah. You see. Now that I've stepped away from it, I can't remember the PPOs and HMOs anymore. <laughs> but uh, luckily, they had um, a wonderful, wonderful palliative hospice care uh, group that worked so brilliantly. I mean, really, really lovely, very well organized, very well orchestrated, um, lovely doctors, lovely nurses, you know, all the way down to the, the people who would come and shower him. And it was my first introduction. I've, I've always uh, cared for elders or people who have been in transition with cancer and things like that and sort of, you know, walk them through those steps. And in the world that I work in, you know, in their transition, you know, from, from one place to the next. And I always find such joy in that uh, to, to just see as Glenn that, that wonderful um, 
statement that you made about how they say it in Taiwan, that peaceful, that peaceful exit or that peaceful ending. It's, it is, that's to me the, the brilliance of seeing someone go so gracefully and help guide them through and support them through that. Um, and having uh, suddenly immersed myself with this team of doctors and nurses who deal with hospice that I had no idea of, you know, in palliative care, because I come from more of the Asian background where you, you support whomever it is right till the end, <laughs> you know, pretty simple. Uh, and to know that there was this whole other entity out there was so brilliant. Um, and I so commend your work and really honor your work that you do and the gifts that you give to so many because it's a you know, ending or a, anything, any kind of change like that is so frightening to most people that even the Chinese culture, as, as uh, if you're familiar with it, you don't talk about death at all. <laughs> you, know, you, you don't mention it. You don't use the number four in anything because that's, it, it signifies death because of the sound and the tone of the number four. <laughs> you know? uh. So, you know, it, it's, it's completely avoided. You don't, um, you, to, to say to somebody that you wish death upon them is like a curse that they will never forget. You know? <laughs> so to have such a core of support for people who, you know, who are in that sort of fear is absolutely brilliant, really brilliant. And, and I hope that uh, the powers that be, you know, whether it be politics or anything like that, will really start to recognize how important this is for all of us, you know, in our future. I remember... Uh, in in keeping our licenses current a few years ago, uh, usually it was just a requirement to go and get CEUs or continuing education units and whatever our specialty was. But suddenly they added that uh, in order to renew our licenses, we had to have uh, some hours of training in end-of-life care and pain management. So speaking of that, what kind of training do the nurses go through and doctors that want to be uh, in hospice and palliative care medicine go through? So um, back when I started, um, it was all on-the-job training. And, you know, you you learn by uh, reading and, and going to conferences. In fact, um, when I was in, you know, medical school, the main textbook of medicine, Harrison's textbook of medicine, which weighs like, you know, 10 pounds, and it's you know, a thousand plus pages. I looked up one time to see, you know, well, what do they actually say in there about caring for dying patients? And they, they actually had, it was only, it was less than one page. It was 15 inches of text um, in, in the old Harrison's uh, textbook. So, I mean, and that sort of, you know, epitomizes the lack of attention that was given toward, um, you know, things like pain management and end of life care back then. But things have, have, have really evolved uh, a lot since then. So now instead of, um, you know, there are whole classes that medical students take. They do hospice rotations. There are entire 10-pound textbooks of palliative medicine that are entirely filled with information about how to take care of um, the end, uh, patients at the end of life, how to do symptom management. They've got, you know, chapters on every possible uncomfortable symptom that a person could have and how to support people through that. Um, and so it, it's really evolved. So when I, you know, I learned palliative medicine uh, and hospice medicine by um, reading, going to conferences, um, and, you know, by the seat of my pants, just on-the-job training. But now, um, to be, if you want to um, get specialized in hospice and palliative medicine, they actually have fellowship training, um, just like you could, you know, you finish your um, residency and you could go do um, a cardiology fellowship, for instance. You can go and do a um, palliative medicine fellowship. Um, so the, the training is formalized. It's an officially recognized um, subspecialty uh, board um, certification. And um, so people who want to learn more and actually want to work in the field now are, are um are really uh, it's necessary to go and do fellowship training now. They just this is the last year that people can actually be kind of grandfathered into the field just based on their experience and get um, board certification. Um, but like I said before, it creates a little bit of a problem because there aren't enough fellowship programs to really um, train the uh, the the leadership or the um, the workforce that we need in the field. 
for nurses um, and social workers um, and chaplains who work in palliative medicine, there are also other variable um, training programs and levels of certification that, that people can, uh, can get. We do a lot of education and training um, uh, just locally here to get our, um, our colleagues and our nursing staff up to speed on some of the new stuff in hospice and palliative medicine as well. Um, a question for you. Uh, what about uh, the families? I mean, is there a support system for the families who are uh, the caretakers of these patients as well? Sure, sure. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the thing that's different about um, practicing in a hospice setting compared to just the regular traditional medical setting, in the, in the traditional medical setting, we're really focused on that person right in front of us, that patient and what their immediate needs are. Um, in a hospice setting, we look at the family as the unit of care, not just the, the individual person. So yeah, so there's a lot of support for families. Uh, we realize that you know a single individual doctor or nurse isn't able to meet all of the, the broad um, uh, range of needs that a patient and family have at the end of their lives. So we kind of travel in packs. We work in, in team fashion, what we call a multidisciplinary <laughs> team. So we have um, physicians, nurses, social workers, um, chaplains or spiritual counselors, we, we call them, uh, volunteers, pharmacists, um, uh, nursing aides. Mm. We all um, meet on a regular basis to discuss uh, cases and we, and we put in whatever supports are necessary for a family and patient uh, to make sure that they can take care of their loved one and be comfortable doing that and have the support they need. Um, so in a hospice setting, that means nurses will go out in the middle of the night and, and take care of somebody who's, who's having symptoms and doesn't want to go back to the hospital mm. uh, but wants to be taken care of in their home. For families, it means that the care doesn't even stop at the time of the person's death. Um, there's a uh, bereavement period that goes on for 13 months after, uh, after death where people continue to get contact and support from uh, that hospice. So they're not having to go through, um, you know, those tough, tough months on their own. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's wonderful. And this is all through the hospital, or is this through your organization? Well, no, this is through. I'm talking kind of generically about mm -hmm. um, hospice programs. So, if you know anybody who lives um, in the U.S. and certainly um, in most of the Western countries, in fact, it's hospice is even a lot more developed in places like the UK and Canada than it is in the US but um, if you if you um, get involved with a hospice program for your care those are the kind of services that you're going to get and that's um, out in the community again in in the US it's um, it's part of um, people's insurance and Medicare benefit that this mm -hmm. is all paid for um, and that those teams of uh, um, supportive uh, practitioners are out there for people. Oh, wonderful. <clears throat> Michael, they have uh, hospice, as you said, in the UK and Canada, and I know they now are starting hospice uh, programs in India and Japan and other parts of Asia. Do you meet with uh, hospice leaders from around the world to see if there are things that can be added from other programs due to their cultures, ways of looking at the end of life that, that might be beneficial that we're not doing here? And in that same respect, do you use any uh, integrative therapies in programs like acupuncture or uh, massage therapy or anything else um, for your care? Yeah. So. In our in our hospice, we do have integrative therapies, um, and we have uh, people who uh, give Reiki, and sometimes patients are getting acupuncture and aromatherapy. And you know, it, again, it, it's it's all about what the patient, the family's needs are, and what their personal desires are. There are families who are really into that, and that's that's what they want, and that's what they get, you know, strength and comfort from, and. So we, you know, we try to do the best we can to to facilitate those kinds of things. I don't uh, personally myself practice those um, uh, integrative therapies. I, um, you know, consider myself um, well versed in you know Western medicine and um, have a hard enough time trying to do that well. Uh, but we <laughs> we certainly uh, you know are 
in you know hospice and palliative care programs are I think are are quite open to uh, using integrative therapies. In terms of the other question you asked about kind of the international uh, uh, part of it, um, I think on um, on an individual basis, a lot of the the leaders in palliative medicine and hospice are really interested in. Um, you know, how other cultures deal with death and dying and, and take care of people to, uh, you know, at the end of their lives. Remember, and this is something that's not new, people have been uh, dying um, and taking care of their loved ones as long as there have been people. Um, so, you know, we have a lot to learn. But um, at an organizational level, the, the biggest challenges um, internationally are actually in some of the underdeveloped countries where they don't even have access to kind of basic things like basic um, pain medicine for somebody who's dying. Um, and even in some of the, some of the somewhat developed countries, uh, some of the, I heard a presentation recently um, from somebody who was practicing in Eastern Europe, the restrictions on using um, uh, opioid pain medicines, for instance, even for people who are dying are really quite onerous. So, so on an international basis, the, the issues um, are really, um, you know, kind of, quite um, quite basic right now, just trying to get people, you know, kind of the bare bones of, of comfort management as a starting point. And so we, there's a lot of um, people in, in, the, uh, in the U.S. hospice and palliative care um, and in the U.K. And, and Canadian hospice and palliative care arenas who are trying to advocate and help out in um, other countries to, uh, to create access to these types of things. Let's get Doug. Uh, down to the nitty-gritty for a few minutes here. Uh, you talked before about people that have insurance uh, that can have hospice care. Can someone without insurance get it, hospice care? Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I can't speak for the entire country, but um, for instance, in our community, I think most hospices function this way. You know, we're, we're there to, to serve, and um, we don't... Uh, uh, get in the way of people getting hospice services regardless of whether they can pay or have an insurance uh, company to pay for it or not. So we, um, so we take all comers basically uh, who, you know, who need and want hospice care. Um, we do, um, most hospices do require that um, a physician be agreeable to making that referral. So that can sometimes be a barrier for people. Um, for a family who wants their loved one referred for hospice care and the physician feels like it's not the right time yet. Um, so that's an area where there's often kind of some um, uh, negotiation between a family and, and a physician on kind of that nitty gritty level. Um, some of it has to do with just recognition of, you know, how do you know when somebody's actually getting uh, near the end of their life and um, when you've done enough, uh, you know, testing and treatments uh, or not. And, and those have to be looked at individually, I think. Hmm. How does someone make their own determination that they want hospice? And this can, again, be, I, I think the categories are someone that's dying, someone that's grieving, or a caregiver, all of those different categories. What makes them think about hospice? Well, I mean, I it, you know, the, the typical situation is a person who's got a serious illness and who has um, arrived at the point where either there are no additional curative treatments that, that are likely to work, or they've arrived at the point where maybe there, are, there still are some things that, you know, a doctor might want to try that might cure, but the patient uh, themselves is saying, you know, I've had enough and, and I really want my focus to be on, on comfort care and not life prolongation. So those are those are kind of the you know the typical symptoms. Areas where it gets a little little harder to tell are, are you know say you know somebody like Christina's uncle or in Christina's uncle's age group, uh, maybe somebody who has Alzheimer's disease for instance and can't really speak for themselves, and they've had a slow deterioration over five or ten years, and you know how do you know when the right time for um, thinking about hospice care would be for that person? And so those ones we struggle a little bit more with. Um. I th one of the issues that always comes up for me are the families that say, well, my loved one is dying and we want to put him in hospice. And then when something really goes wrong, they suddenly want treatment again. 
uh, mm-hmm. say, a pneumonia that comes up, then how does hospice deal with things like that and prepare people for that process? Yeah, so um, in patients who are actually enrolled hospice patients, um, we put emergency medicine kits in their homes, and we have 24-hour access to uh, nursing care. So for that family who's taking care of a loved one who, you know, maybe gets sick, you know, in, in the middle of the night, and they really don't want to have to take them back to the emergency room, they, ha- they now have options. They've got medications in the home that can be used for comfort management. They've got a nurse available who can come out, you know, within you know, a matter of, of an hour to help get them comfortable and keep them comfortable at home. And that, that's how, you know, for most of our hospice patients, we're able to facilitate a, a comfortable, um, dignified death in, in the home. Um, I think, Glenn, what, what you probably saw a lot in, in the emergency room were, you know, people who were kind of frail, the frail elderly or the chronically ill person who sort of decided, you know, they don't, they don't want any more aggressive treatment. But then when they get sick in the middle of the night, there's nobody to call. There's no support. It may take them two or three days to get in to see their physician. And, um, and so what, are they, what options do they have? I mean, they end up having to, you know, they're sick and there's nobody to call and no other way to get help. So they call, you know, an ambulance and they, they show up in the emergency room. Um, so hospice is, is really, in one way, it's, uh, one of the benefits that we provide is the um, creation of an, an alternative emergency plan, you know, some other options that you'll have, you know, when your loved one gets sick or when, you know, when you get sick. Mm-hmm. Um. Michael, I found that there was, maybe you can help me understand this better, there was, seemed to have been a very fine line between hospice and palliative, um, because I I know you described it earlier, but what I found to be very curious was my uncle, who was supposed to die in two or three weeks, actually didn't end up dying. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He ended up living for another, I, I do believe, almost nine months, actually. So... Um, and got pretty strong. So he was sort of, um, there was that, that balance of when he was considered out of hospice and into palliative. And it was something that we never really got to sort of clarify those lines on. Right. So this is kind of, it, it's, it's definitely a common source of confusion is, you know, what's the difference between hospice care and palliative care and who should have which one and and, um, you know, hospice care is, is in this country, as, as it was sort of defined by the Medicare benefit, they mm. said, we're willing to pay for um, <coughs> hospice care for Medicare uh, recipients who have a six-month or less life expectancy, which sounds great on paper, but actually figuring out who has a six-month or less life expectancy right. is really difficult. Um, and it's obviously, you know, inaccurate a lot of the time, and there's a lot of guesswork involved. So um, for our hospice patients, if they live longer than six months while they're on hospice, they're actually allowed to continue to stay on hospice hmm. as long as it looks like they still have that, that limited prognosis. So we sometimes have patients on hospice care for, um, for more than a year even hmm. um, because, you know, they exceeded what we, our expectations were in terms of how long they'd survive, but they're still um, deteriorating in that time. Um, but then we also have patients who really truly get better. Sometimes it's just the, you know, all the TLC and attention that they get on a hospice program seems to help kind of pull them back from the, uh, the precipice. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we, you know, graduate and discharge a fair number of patients from, uh, from our hospice program also. Oh, and for those patients, you know, we try to get them connected with other services in the community. So that's where if you live in a community that's got an outpatient palliative care service, where that might come, come in, into play you know, after you've graduated from hospice. Or palliative care, again, doesn't have that restriction on just just being for people who are dying. Mm-hmm. So, um, for instance, there's really a big push now to get palliative care for um, cancer patients who are going through treatment, even if you think they might be cured or they're going to live for, you know, another five years. Some of the um, uh, big important papers uh, published last year showed that people who got with lung cancer who got palliative care early in the course of their treatment actually lived longer mm. and were more comfortable. They had less symptoms, less pain, and less depression, and it improved their survival. 
Um, so, so there's a real push to get palliative care, palliative medicine uh, moved upstream so that, you know, it's not just for somebody who's, you know, in the dying stage, but it's for people who have, um, you know, a serious illness and, and that level of need. Mm, that would be wonderful. That would be really great. I just got an email uh, from a person asking uh, they're working with an elderly person that they believe is dying, and they wanted to know if it was okay or it was bad to tell them that it was okay for them to go home or be allowed to die. Does, does hospice give training to families? You talked about families. Do they help them in having discussions with the dying members? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And a lot of what we're there for is to is to give support to families and answer questions, you know, just like that. You know, what what do you say? How do you talk to the person? When is the right time to be discussing it? And you know, every family and every situation is different, um, and so that's that's why you can't just kind of put it up, you know, put up on a website. Here's the time to tell somebody uh, when they're dying and when to go toward the light. Um, but, you know, life doesn't work like that. But if you have somebody who's actually out in the home, who knows the family, knows the patient, knows the situation, you know, then they can give, you know, good, you know, good advice and good counseling to people. I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here for a moment and ask a question, uh, not in our state, but in other states, they uh, approve of assisted euthanasia or mm -hmm. assisted suicide. Is that something that hospice will ever ever be part of do you see anything in there yeah interesting question I mean, you know if you ask the lay public most people probably assume that hospices are are big advocates for um, physician assisted suicide or euthanasia those kind of things um, but actually traditionally um, hospices have, have kind of taken a, uh, a position against legalizing physician assisted suicide um, and, and the reason for that, I think, is uh, um, that you know, when you actually get out there and you work with, with uh, patients who are dying and people who are dying, you find that you know, it's a very, very small minority of people who actually really want and need help you know, to speed up their death. What most people need is they need good end-of-life care. They need good symptom management and good support in those settings and then they don't ask you about or they're not talking about um, you know how do I speed up my uh, my death so traditionally hospices haven't been real enthusiastic about efforts to legalize physician-assisted suicide because we think what we really need are more efforts to improve um, end-of-life care for everybody um, you know having said that there's a really broad spectrum of opinion among people who work in in um, uh, the hospice and palliative medicine field about uh, about that um, you know, there's there's a very slow movement of of um, states to legalizing physician assisted suicide. I think it's being looked at in Montana now, um, and right now the only other states where it's it's uh, legal are um, Oregon and Washington, I believe. Um, but it's a it's a controversial area. Um, it probably uh, doesn't. Uh, it's not something that that the majority of people really need, but it is an area that many people are interested in. What's uh, what's been the most difficult part for you, either on a personal level? I mean, you're seeing people dying every day, and I know people that have worked in hospice, and after a certain amount, they started as volunteers and realized that they they just couldn't handle it. Uh, so it is a very special person that goes into this. What's what's been the most difficult part for you in this whole process? Um. I think it's it's difficult for people who um, who struggle with creation of, of their boundaries. So I think um, people who have um, difficulty, you know, knowing the difference between um, being a professional um, person caring for a patient and being um, somebody who's you know sort of personally and, and highly emotionally involved with a the patient, they're going to struggle in in hospice and palliative medicine, and and they don't you know they often can work in that area and do great work for a few years, but then have to go on to something else. It's just too, it can be too kind of emotionally exhausting with you know multiple losses uh, as as you take care of that many people who are at the end of their lives, but. People who um, can have a, who have a good kind of um, 
uh, I don't know how to describe it, but uh, kind of balance and, you know, know what their limits are and, and are introspective. Um, they, they can last a long time in hospice and palliative medicine. It's really, you know, people are always saying, you know, when they hear, they hear you work in hospice or something like that, they, they, their first comments usually are, oh, wow, that must be really depressing work. Um, but it's actually really, um, it's, it's very rewarding. Um, you're, you're there with patients and families at um, a time in their lives when you can really make a big difference um, and that matters um, to people. And, you know, it, it's, you're invited into what's, what's a really kind of an intimate time in, in a family's life also. And um, to be able to be there and, and witness that and, and play your part in that is, is actually quite rewarding. So the, um, you know, the risk of burnout in, in, for professional providers in hospice and palliative medicine probably isn't, isn't much higher than it is in any other medical field. And, and in some ways, it may be less, less so. I was I was thinking in my mind when you were asking that question between someone like you, Glenn, who was working in the emergency department, running around like like as you said, you know, speed, quick movements were you know the key to someone in hospice, which is about the calm, <laughs> the flow, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think the burnout would be where you're at. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is there is a lot of burnout in uh, certainly in emergency medicine. But again, I think in people that go into emergency medicine, some go in for it because of the lifestyle that it leads to or allows. Some go in because they really love that concept of medicine, and and those that really love it. Uh, there's usually not burnout when you're practicing the medicine, as as in many of the other fields, as Michael will uh, surely attest. It's the paperwork and the administrative things mm. that seem to cause a lot more of the burnout. I, I find that most doctors and nurses and healers go into their professions just because they will get joy out of healing and helping in healing processes. And even dying is a healing process in many ways, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yes. Um, Michael, uh, go ahead, Christina. Uh, there was a, a question that came in, uh, Michael. Um, where is the best place to take care of an elderly patient when they're in a lot of pain? Um, well, I, I mean, I think that's the perfect situation where you want to, you know, go to your doctor and say, you know, is this, you know, a situation where we could get help from a hospice or somebody in palliative medicine to try to help with pain management? Um, but you know, in those situations, um, it that's with an elder, especially with an elderly uh, elderly patient, you really need an advocate, and so somebody who can who can stand up and and call up or go to an appointment with them and say, you know, look, you know, my mom is really uncomfortable; she can't sleep at night really just be able to describe what the problem is and, and insist that there be some focus on that. You know, when you're taking care of elderly patients, um, they have such long lists of medical problems and long lists of medications, and they're really complicated patients to take care of. And um, if they can't speak well for themselves, they really need somebody to, to be there with them when they interact with the medical system to focus the um, the professional's attention on on the right places, and so um, if it's pain, then then you know going with them to a doctor's visit or calling up and saying, you know, look, this is what we need to focus on, and and uh, insisting that that you get that kind of care. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Michael. With all of my guests, I always ask for a special health tip. Uh, based on your own unique experiences in medicine, can you share something with us today? Sure. Um, so I was thinking about this, and, um, you know, I thought it probably should be relevant, you know, health tip relevant to what we've been talking about here today. And I, I just want to share with you kind of one of the things that I've learned uh, over the years. Everybody wants to, wants to be um, comfortable at the end of their life and uh, avoid suffering. And, and have, you know, what, what some people describe as, as a good, dignified, peaceful death. And, um, and I think the, um, the thing that you might assume about that is that it's dependent on, you know, what you die from and what disease you have and um, that you have, you know, enough 
morphine at your bedside is going to going to ensure that, that that you're comfortable and that's actually how a lot of medical people come at come at that also but this has actually been looked at and and it turns out that um, the amount of distress and suffering that people have at the end of their life is really highly correlated with how they lived their life um, and not as highly correlated with what they're actually dying from and um, so there there's there's things written about the lowering and the, the, the lower correlation of, of suffering and distress at the end of their life in people who have um, what's termed healing connections. And so healing connections are, are sort of what my tip are, and I'll tell you what those are um, or how, they, how they've been defined. Um, but um, they basically talk about um, four broad categories of healing connections, and if somebody has a strong healing connection in one of these four categories, they seem to have less distress at the end of their life. So the, the categories they refer to, probably the easiest one to understand is family. So mm -hmm. people who have a strong family connection for reasons that we don't really understand seem to have less distress and, and suffering at the, at the end of their life. Um, but it doesn't have to be a family connection. It can be any one of these. So um, another one is people who have um, uh, connections, uh, a strong connection with the, um, the natural world. So people who have a sense of being part of nature or belonging in nature um, or just the beauty of nature um, seem to have um, less distress at the end of their lives. Um, another one is a, a sense of self, and that one's kind of harder to, to understand or define, but I, I sort of think of it as people who are comfortable with themselves, who are introspective, um, who've you know thought about their lives and and have some perspective on who they are um, uh, in in the universe seem to have more comfort at the end of their lives uh, as well. And then the the other one is of course uh, in the spiritual realm. So people who have a strong uh, sense of spirituality or connection with their spirituality doesn't necessarily mean people who are highly religious, but people who have a strong sense of spirituality seem to have less distress at the end of their lives. So those four healing connections, um, family, one's uh, connection with nature, connections with oneself, um, or spirituality, um, you know, whatever one of those things appeal to you as an individual, I, I think is, you know, part of our life work, we need to kind of foster those, um, those connections and, and really focus on that. If you want to have... Um, comfort at the end of your life and not be distressed at the end of your life, um, focusing on those, on making connections in the world, regardless of what area it's in, really seems to be uh, part of the secret. Mm. Wonderful. I think that's a fabulous health tip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so go for one of the four, everyone. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I actually, I, I saw that in the emergency department quite often when people, when certain people were dying and there was no other alternative to the process, no matter what we were going to do, but they were still somewhat alert and oriented and conscious. The ones that, that had one of those four things and spirituality seemed to be the easiest one to recognize in them. Uh, they seemed to be much more peaceful in the whole process, along with the families and loved ones around the, uh, the bedside with them. So that's a fantastic uh, tip. Is there anything you want to end with, Michael? No, I think um, you guys have asked really good questions, and uh, it's been uh, been a pleasure to talk with you. And you know, people who want to learn more, there, there's there's a ton of resources on um, on the web now, and there are hospices in every community in in this country, and and you know in most places around the world now. Um, so there's there's lots of places to learn more and hear more and um, uh, hopefully people will find uh, find what they need. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I'd like to re uh, let everyone know that we can learn a little bit more about <clears throat> Michael and his incredible team and their work at uh, the URL palliativecareconsultants.com. Palliativecareconsultants.com. It's a beautiful site that is what I learned today that is very new, and the number, um, the amount of resources on that site is absolutely brilliant. And um, I can only see it growing even further and larger. So congratulations on that, Michael, and on all the work that you do and your team. Thank you. I'm very grateful to my special guest, uh, Dr. Michael 
Wardofsky uh, taking time and sharing his wisdom and expertise with us. I'd also like to thank my own teachers and all those that have healed me in my uh, journey. I'm looking forward to getting together with all of you and Christina next time as we go through the other quadrants of the healthcare galaxy searching for good things. And until that time, I wish you all optimal health. Bye, blessings to all.